Episode 2, Doublet en Ton. Hello and welcome to Episode 2, Who Thought We'd Make It This Far, of Much Ado About The AQ, uh, which I'm tentatively titling um, Doublet en Tendre. Mm. Uh, because today we're talking about the first folio and um, its famous frontispiece, the image of Shakespeare or Shakespeare or whoever it may be that's gone down in history. Uh, but before we start, just a couple of thanks, a couple of shout outs for people. Um, thank you for those of you that have uh, given us positive reviews on Spotify and places. It's hugely appreciated. Shout out to Alan Tarika, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, literary exercise one this will go in the description on twitter um who has shared some fantastic stuff with me um a brilliant article which i'm sure he'll share with you if you ask him called had he a hand to write this uh which he co-wrote with w ron hess about shakespeare's handwriting Mm. Uh, well worth a read um and also to the de vere society on twitter who have ever been fantastic Uh, i'm here my name's joe payne i'm an english teacher a bald-headed idiot uh, conspiracy theorist, lunatic, whatever you want to call me, uh, and I am joined as ever by my colleague Dr. Christian Taylor. Hello. Hello Joe, um, thank you for having me on again. Here's to more fun and games in this episode. Sure thing, have you been reading anything this week? Um, I, I'm always reading things uh, kind of in orbit around the AQ or directly on it. Um, I think we uh, sufficiently uh, plugged, as it were, uh, Elizabeth Winkler's book uh, last mm. time, Shakespeare Was a Woman, and Other Heresies, available at all good bookshops, and possibly some bad ones. Um, I, I would kind of add to that, um, there's no particular order to this, but um, um, Shakespeare Beyond Doubt, question mark, uh, and that's a book edited by uh, John Shahan and uh, Alexander Waugh, and that was their response to a book put out by the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust called Shakespeare Beyond Doubt, no question mark. Full stop. Full stop. Absolutely right. So definitive. This, this of course, uh, a production of Sir Stanley Wells and his "It is immoral to question history" type approach. Yeah. So um, a classic, genuinely one of the big books, kind of almost in the AQ canon, uh, a massive thing and well worth a read. So we're going to go on to um, kind of the main topic of the podcast, uh, which is the frontispiece of the first folio. In just a second, however. Uh, before that, a challenge to all the Stratfordians out there. We know you're listening. You're not engaging with us on any social media just yet, but we know you're out there. We can smell your fear. <laughs> we can taste it. It's delicious <laughs> and salty. But, uh, yeah, come on, talk to us. Debate us, cowards. Um, <laughs> oh, you know, we, we, we know you're out there. The likes of um, James Shapiro, the worst Shapiro, <laughs> uh, is out there ready to come up with his barbed ways. I mean, we've read your takedown of Winkler and um, we have our opinions on that. We'd love to talk to you, to you about them. Please do get in touch. I'm on Twitter, at God of Chicken. Uh, we have our email address, muchadoaboutheaq at gmail.com. Just feel free to get in touch and we'd love to hear from you. Mm. So, on to the main business of the podcast. Um, the opening of the first folio. Right, so the first folio is... Um was published in 1623, that's uh, seven years after Shakespeare dies in 1616. And this is the repository for all things canonical. So there are 36 Shakespeare plays, they're in the first folio. A great many of them appear for the first time in that, in that book. Uh, what that means is there were no previous versions of those plays. Uh, they were published in a smaller book size called a quarto, 
So, for example, we've had a debate in the English department here recently about Macbeth. Uh, Macbeth is one play, along with The Tempest, that appears for the first time in the first folio. Uh, There are no quarto editions. Why does this matter? It matters because we don't have an original or previous version of a text to which we can compare the first folio to deal with, you know, just basic things, textual differences and allusions. We'll, so we'll certainly come back to that. I think we've got a whole episode worth of stuff on mm. um, the ancestor of one of our colleagues here. We'd love to get him on. Yes, um, he, he, he will be appearing in a future episode to talk about um, uh, Macbeth um, in a great deal of detail. Um, but yeah, the, the, the first folio of 1623 is, is noteworthy for, for lots of different reasons. Um, I mean, you might want to just kind of think about the fact that if you find a first folio, as somebody did at Hey on Why a few years mm. ago, uh, and then approach a, an American university uh, and ask them to buy it, you've just retired. Um, I think the last one sold for about three and a half million English pounds. So, yeah, this, is, this has been called the most important book in the history of world literature, uh, which is kind of a grandiose claim, but I suppose it has... Uh, yeah, it, it might well be the case. But it's a very odd book. It's got lots of oddities, and they're, they're chiefly to do with the dedicatory poems by uh, Ben Jonson, the portrait or the, uh, the, the picture, if you like, of Shakespeare that's used on the title page, the engraving, um, and then various other cryptic things that don't quite add up. Uh, and I thought that's what we could get into today. Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, there's, there's a lot to talk about with the first folio. We probably won't cover everything in this episode, but as you heard last week, this is a, an introductory guide to the AQ. We invite you to do your own research and, and think for yourself. That's very much the point of what we're doing. We're not here to say, believe us, we're here mm. to leave you with questions. Mm. So, um, shall we start with the Johnson? Um, well, the, there are lots of things in the first folio written by Ben Johnson, who is a friend of uh, Shakespeare, um, and he uh, writes a kind of a long introductory uh, uh, poem. And um, Now, I don't have that to hand, but what I do know is that he spends quite a bit of time at the start of that poem uh, saying he, he won't discuss Shakespeare X, which is kind of like, uh, as it were, the, the, the Shakespeare um, associated with um, the, the popular imagination. Instead, he wants to talk about his Shakespeare. And when you read the poem by Johnson, um, he actually says that he will talk about his Shakespeare from line 17 of the poem. And that's been seen by Oxfordians who love a bit of uh, kind of number symbolism to be rather significant because when Johnson, in his opening poem, uh, switches to talking about the person he calls his Shakespeare, like the real Shakespeare, uh, that starts on line 17, Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford. And remember, it's easy to dismiss one of these facts, factoids, claims in isolation, but when they accumulate, and they do you start to work out that there might be something to it. And we're, we're, we're told, and um, it's certainly a provable fact, that Ben Jonson was a massively elusive writer. He mm. always hid symbolism in his work. He was a very arrogant, dismissive kind of writer. He wasn't writing for the hoi polloi. He was writing for intelligentsia-type people who could see the symbolism at work in his, in his verse and in his plays. So we think he's cryptically trying to communicate facts about Shakespeare... Um, so yeah the dedicatory matter is is super vague um, but I think more hinges immediately on, on the image yeah I mean uh, Johnson wasn't the only one to be writing cryptically at the time it, mm. was, it was very much a 
the nature of the 17th century, a, a time of massive paranoia politically and socially for people to hide what they meant within their writing. Mm. Um, and Johnson himself says, reader, look not on his picture, but his book. Mm. There's this interesting hint at the end of his preface there that there's, there's something up with this picture that you would probably be on the facing page um, of the first rodeo. So if you if you don't have a copy, it's worth grabbing one, having a look at it. Mm. If you're out walking the dog um, and you've got your phone on you, just <laughs> Google Shakespeare first photo. You'll see the picture. You'll know the picture. It's it's probably the most famous mm. picture of Shakespeare. Um, but there's plenty to say about it. Well, yeah, Johnson says, uh, that image that thou seest here put, it was for gentle Shakespeare cut. So it's not of him, it's for him. Mm. It stands in for him. And, and what everyone said about this, this picture, this famous picture of Shakespeare, which is by Martin Druchet, um, it, it, it is that it, it is extremely um, badly executed. It looks more like a caricature. So although I know this is the medium of um, sound and not image, but just, just if you have got this picture, here's what you're seeing, okay? So you have this kind of disembodied head, uh, mm. a weird rough type thing, a doublet below it, um, that the face looks um, very strangely proportioned. It seems to be bigger than the body and not attached to it. Um, now, what I've heard said by the Stratfordian community, who are struck by a degree of paranoia about this, I would say, is that, well, Martin Druchet was just kind of starting out at this point, and he, this was early on in his career. He could have executed a better kind of likeness. But let's not forget that the first folio... Uh, by Hemmings and Condell, we are told, although people think it was probably Johnson who put it all together, um, they commissioned Druchet to, to you know, produce this, this image. And what that means is they paid him to do it. So if it had been wrong or badly executed or not what they wanted, surely they would have just told him, you're not having any money. And the clinching thing for me is, uh, when you get to the second folio of 1632 the strange image is still there. So this image, and we haven't said why it's weird yet, but I will, um, it, it's a deliberate image produced by people who are paying for it to be produced. So that, that argues for its authenticity and the fact that it was intended uh, to appear as it does. Yeah, you'd certainly suggest that, um, given the things, we've got, the inconsistencies, the strangenesses we'll be pointing out, that mm. if you've seen this picture, you've been brought up with this picture, you wouldn't notice. Mm. It's mm. just, it's familiar, mm. it's comfortable. Mm. And yet, when, um, when we pick these out, if you spotted that in, in one of the most, as we say, the important works of literature, if you were going to put out a, a second version of this book, mm. you'd probably get a new picture done. I believe there was a third and a fourth folio, and they all have the same image. Um, and, th th you know, this was a book that was very expensive to produce. Just think about book printing 400 years ago um, and, and the process involved in uh, collating all the material and so on. So, yeah. Um, so to kind of give you a, some idea of what's going on, um, the, the, the first thing to look at is the face. And if you look at the image of Shakespeare's face from Drew Schutz, we'll call it a portrait, um, mm -hmm. on the right-hand side as you look at it, or on his left-hand side, there are some kind of very obvious crease lines um, and it might be uh, one might be forgiven for thinking that this depicts a second chin he's a slightly older portly gentleman <laughs> we know that in the original uh, memorial at Stratford he's basically depicted as a fat merchant but the thing same, is same here. I mean you know we've all been called that um, but yeah if you actually look at this in the right way what you're seeing is not a second chin but a mask 
Okay. Now, mask in Latin is persona. And you'll know from older copies of Shakespeare's plays that when it lists the, um, the characters in the play, they're called the dramatis personae, the people in the play. So mask in Latin means simultaneously person. Um, sorry, um, persona in Latin means simultaneously person and mask. So Shakespeare's wearing a mask in this famous portrait, and go and have a look at it. You can see the lines on the right-hand side as you're looking at it. So that's oddity number one. It strikes out as quite obvious, and you know, there's this implication of, of something being hidden or someone being hidden behind mm. behind a mask that and often adds to the, the wonderful conspiracy effect that the AQ has. I mean, if you didn't want there to be a conspiracy or for people like us and this podcast to exist, mm. wouldn't you just draw a picture of the guy? Yeah. I mean, find out what he looks like, slap that on your first folio. And you may have seen another portrait out there. It's called the Chandos portrait. Uh, Shakespeare looks like Captain Jack Sparrow, yep. receding hairline, little gold earring, looks like he's been out on the razzle-dazzle. Um, that is not known to be Shakespeare. That's not definitively Shakespeare. So uh, th- this thing is obviously a, a badly executed executed caricature, but deliberately so. This, this is the first picture we know is supposed to be supposedly of Shakespeare because it has his name... Well, yeah, I mean, so many ways. yeah. Even though Johnson's telling you, no, 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 this is just a replacement for the real guy. Yeah. Um, the the other thing then that I really, really like is that about a hundred years ago, a tailor, as in one who cuts cloth, from the Latin sartor, uh, so not a family member, but I'd love it if it were, if he if he had been. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, a tailor looked at the uh, the doublet, as I call it. How do you pronounce it, Joe? I pronounce it jublet or jublet. Okay, but he's a bit French, so. Let's <laughs> um, if, if you look at the, uh, let's call it a doublet. All right. Um, all right. <clears throat> what the tailor noticed is now you have to look at the, the image again, and we're moving from the face with the, the, the crease lines representing the mask down to the uh, the doublet or the tunic or the jacket that he's wearing. Um, if you look at it, there are two panels on the front. So this isn't the arms. This is the chest area. Um, and the two panels depicted in the engraving are different. And that's because the, um, just to get this absolutely right, the left-hand back panel of the doublet has been put on the front right panel. Okay, so let's just go over that again. The left-hand back panel of the doublet has been kind of transposed to the front right of the doublet. And this was noticed by a tailor, a guy who would know how to make a doublet Mm. and how the blooming things should be put together. Now, what this basically means, therefore, is that we're looking at this on our left, and that makes the image left-handed. Now, left-handed in Latin is sinister, but also in terms of Elizabethan Jacobean symbolism, a left-handed person or a left-handed writer was known to be somebody who dissembled, who was fake, who was phony, who was faux. Um, And also, they call these people coney catchers. Uh, conies are obviously little rabbits, but a coney catcher is, uh, is a phrase from Elizabethan underworld slang, and it referred to people who would prey on people coming into London for the first time, um, you know, in the big smoke, not knowing what to do, and then you could go up to them and, you know, kind of um, steal their money or swindle them. And this guy is therefore being presented as somebody who's doing that to you, the unsuspecting reader. Mm, even, even the buttons pretty clearly would be done up from the left when you look at the picture closely. It's, mm. um, these buttons have been done up from the left, and mm. um, if, you're, if you're not aware of the kind of conventions of clothing, um, this, that 
most men obviously right-handed, so both would be done up from the right. So it's it's mm. it's fairly obvious when you look at it, and yet it's taken mm. until mm. the twentieth century and a tailor. Mm. Some not a no student of literature, and I've often had this issue with people at the the very top of academia. And I say this in a room with a doctor of English literature, but mm. those who who consider themselves the the dons of um, English literature almost gatekeeping this kind of thing from people who aren't and uh, and yet it was a tailor who noticed this mm. but yeah this this is all about the shape of, of panels of cloth isn't it this mm. is not something that you as a reader as a um, an analyst of literature would notice but when you look at it it seems quite obvious yeah I mean this kind of hidden symbolism if you think about it it's of a piece with Johnson's elusive cryptic uh, writing style uh, mm. in his plays and, and in the first folio it, it's hiding in plain sight and actually, that's a perfectly nice little segue because I did want to give a shout-out of my own this week. Um, talking about Hidden in Plain Sight, there's a podcast of the same name, Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's been produced by Dr. Peter Hodges and his colleague Julian Ung. And it's well worth a listen. I think it's up to the seventh and possibly final um, emission this week. Uh, but it's brilliant. It's it's yeah. kind of all about the, the Marlowe... Um, alleged death in 1593, um, and it's a very pro-Marlovian reading. Uh, we, we noticed before setting up today that um, Dr. Hodges has now been called basically the new Calvin Hoffman. Mm. So I must take back what I said last time, that there's no champion of the Marlovian theory uh, currently operating. It is uh, Dr. Hodges. But there you go, a little shout-out to him uh, for, for a brilliant podcast that inspired this. Yeah, please do come on and talk to us, Dr. Hodges. We'd love to speak to you about Marlowe and... Uh why he is a decent candidate for the Shakespeare question. Mm. Um, back to the first folio. The, the other kind of weird symbolism going on here that was pointed out by, if I am correct, Alexander War in conversation with Elizabeth Winkler <coughs> and then reported in her book um, is what we call the Apollo symbolism. So if you go back to the head of the picture, the engraving, the Drusha... You, you can't thing, miss it. You, can, you cannot miss this stately pleasure dome and then the long flowing hair, uh, and the, the weird eyes, um, and the dodgy facial hair. Now I come to think about it, yeah, I don't know yeah. what's it's, going on. I'm, I'm just jealous of how much hair he's got, to be honest. Yeah, I, I mean, it's receding, but there's a lot on the sides, isn't there? Yeah. You could do two comb-overs and... <laughs> Double comb-over. <laughs> combine them. Smart. Yeah, with a Velcro strip down the middle <laughs> of some kind. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so the Apollo symbolism, as pointed out by Mr. War, is as follows. Um, he has a very shiny forehead. It looks like the sun... Now, you might just say, no, this is just an oddity of the engraving process. <clears throat> well, engraving's done by hand, so it's deliberate. Um, and then on the rough, you can see one, two, three, four, five, six kind of uh, sun rays beaming out either side of his bonds. So the combined shiny forehead and then um, sun rays on the rough mm. seems to suggest that what you're looking at is Apollo, um, you know, among other things, god of... Um, archery, music, dance, truth, prophecy, healing and diseases, poetry as well. So he's a major uh, deity and he's the god of poetry. Now, why is it relevant that the first folio picture depicts uh, an Apollo? Well, that's because, uh, as it says here, and I can quote here from Ms. Winkler's book, um, War brought out a copy of the first folio and laid it in front of me. Flipping through the pages, he stopped at the Druship portrait. 
Look at the bright light on the forehead and the great rays coming out from his collar, he said, pointing at the figure's bulbous forehead, which is oddly highlighted. I hadn't noticed before that the markings on his collar look like sun rays. It's the great Phoebus Apollo, the patron god, hiding behind the mask of a player. He's so bright that the light seems to be bursting through. War ex- uh, exclaimed excitedly. After the preamble warning about praise of the author's name, Ben Johnson begins his tribute on the 17th line, befitting the 17th Earl of Oxford. Um, and the, the, the really key thing is, of course, that um, Oxford was constantly refer- referred to as the English Apollo. Plenty more to say on Oxford in a later, uh, a later edition. Um, just on the rough, is there, I mean, it's, it's a very strange-looking one compared to what we know of roughs, is it? Mm. Do you think there's anything in the fact that there are six beams coming out of it, or is that just... There, there certainly would be space for more. I, I count seven, so four on his left, two on his right. Um, four and two is six. Yeah, what did I just say? Seven. <laughs> it's going well. We're not mathematicians <laughs> on this podcast. Sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm labouring under a misapprehension. Um, yes, there are six. I don't know. I mean, given the angle of the head or the, the perspective, I guess we, we wouldn't see the other two. There's certainly space for another one on, on the left. I'm just wondering, and this mm. is... Uh, good listener, if you would like to do any more investigation, then please do come up with some good, good six symbolism yeah. on, on that one. Oh, I did have something else from the first file that's kind of related. Go on then. Um, apart from the fact that, um, yeah, um, Apollo was Oxford, was Apollo. That's yeah. It says here, Apollo, god of the arts and leader of the muses, was a common epithet for the Earl of Oxford. So there you go. Um, the, the other thing is this. In the dedicatory matter in the first folio... Um, Shakespeare is referred to as the sweet swan of Avon. Oh, yeah. Now, I know there might be a great many Stratfordians, hidden, furtive types, listening out there, thinking, yes, he's finally mentioned it, and it's, uh, you know, it's KO for the Earl of Oxford. But you see, although it seems like a great uh, gotcha moment and, and a, a drop-the-mic drop moment for, for the Stratfordians, it really isn't. Um, relating to the uh, Earl of Oxford as Apollo reference, um, animals associated with Apollo were... The raven, a, bit, a few of those in Macbeth. Mm-hmm. The wolf, one of those in Macbeth, I think. But more pertinently, the swan. So the swan was associated with Apollo, was associated with Oxford. All right? now that, that, that's pretty tenuous, but as I say, these things accumulate. Um, the other thing, of course, is the word Avon. Now, what do you, Mr. Payne, think Avon means? And I don't mean Avon calling. Well, obviously, your first link is to Stratford-upon-Avon, isn't it? And that's your, it's, that's it, your most obvious. It is the most obvious thing to, to suggest. Um, and yeah, there is a problem with that. And the problem is, of course, that oh, no. um, the, 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 the word Avon is just an English word meaning river. Um, and if we did want to talk about Stratford, the closest Stratford to here is in London, not in Warwickshire. Mm. Um, but yeah, what we know is that the, um, the word Avon in the 16th century, and I'm talking about including the lifespan of De Vere, Marlowe, uh, Shakespeare, the, the, everybody really who was writing at the time, the word Avon at that time referred to one place, and that was Hampton Court Palace, which is on the Thames, which would have swans. Um, so I'll just quote this from um, one of the, um, uh, let's call it pro-Oxfordian websites, uh, quoting Alexander War again. Um, in his Signea Cantio, 1545, Leyland explained that Hampton Court was called Avon as a shortening of the Celtic Roman name Avondunum or Avondunum, 
meaning a fortified place, Dunum, by a river, Avon, <coughs> which the common people by corruption called Hampton, and war added. This etymology was supported by Raphael Hollinshead, who wrote in his Chronicles, 1586, that we now pronounce Hampton for Avondun. So there's another kind of um, oft-repeated claim from the Stratfordian community that Sweet Swan of Avon points to Stratford-upon-Avon, which I think is comprehensively dismantled by facts and historical research. Well, interestingly, um, Oxfraud.com, which is a very fun uh, counter-Oxfordian website, it's, it's a good laugh, it's worth a look, Oxfraud.com. Um, yeah, they, they like to point out where they think we're wrong. Uh, as attempted to almost break this down on their, um, in, in their article, uh, Brave New Avon, um, <laughs> wherein they, they seem to claim that it was not... that the, This core of their argument seems to be that it was never called Avon when the Romans were here. I mean, it's literally based on a Latin word. Yeah. Meaning and fortified place. And what did the Romans tend to do? I don't know. I mean, what, are we 15 miles from Dover Castle here? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know Henry II built that, but it was a Roman fortification. And yeah, come on, the Romans built fortifications. Is what L- Londinium was yeah. a, a fortified city on a river, which on is a river. How they move things around? Yeah. yeah I mean, we're so not far from Richborough Roman Fort in Sandwich here. That was the first Roman fort in the country built on a river. Yeah, an Avon, you might say. Precisely. I just, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure I buy their. Uh, no. What, 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 what often happens here is that there's a reference later to thy Stratford monument in a separate part of the first folio, not in the line Sweet Swan of Avon. And by a weird process of some kind of like reverse spoonerismisms, they kind of put Stratford in front of Avon and say, aha, ta-da. But the nearest Stratford was in London. And even if it does refer, well, it does refer to the Stratford monument, but as I think I argued convincingly last time, uh, that thing's been changed. Um, and, and even if it is um, a monument of Shakespeare, it's massively cryptic and seems to be pointing to Westminster Abbey. And by the way, just to reprise something that we mentioned last time, um, obviously I go off and do some more anoraking in between episodes. Uh, it is now my life. Um, and, and here's something else that's really obvious and hiding in plain sight about the Stratford tomb, just to take a segue back to that. Sure. Um, you know that it's, uh, it's um, in front of the altar, in Holy Trinity, Stratford-upon-Avon, the yep. church there. Um, and it's got this kind of cryptic curse on it, you know, don't remove my bones, you know, please don't ultrasound curse me. Curse be he that moves my bones, yeah, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Don't, don't probe, because if you do, you'll see... Uh, to be fair, good advice, generally. I mean, just don't probe, you know, yeah. get consent. Um, well, also, the name, uh, the, there's no name on the tomb. No. I mean, to me, this is like the elephant in the room. The tomb, supposedly belonging to Shakespeare the author... Um, is not on the tomb. It is a nameless tomb. It is a nameless tomb. I, I do think that's significant. Everything else is claimed after the event, after the fact. Um, I just thought I'd throw that in there because it will make somebody's monocle pop. <laughs> monocle popping since 2023 uh, should be the tagline. <laughs> I'm going to add that on Spotify when I update the second episode. Let's do it. Uh, popping monocle since 2023. Yep. Um, so... Hopefully you've uh, you've enjoyed our little dalliance with the first folio. Um, there's lots more to uncover, and please do go for it. See what you can find uh, yourself. Oh, you've got more. Um, I just thought I'd end with this because this wouldn't go well anywhere else. Okay. <clears throat> Again, this is another kind of uh, revelation from the good Mister War, uh, who who tunes in frequently. I I, I hear so. Good day frequently to you. Frequently to both episodes. <laughs> it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Um, 
this is something that blew my mind completely as, as you know, I'm pretty exuberant about these things. Anyway, if you look, if you get an online version of the first folio and go to the catalogue page, in other words, you know, what you're about to read, uh, it says a catalogue of the several comedies, histories and tragedies contained in this volume. Um, there's kind of a weird pan-like deity in the middle of it all. There are kind of like flam- flamingo-looking creatures, some kind of like deformed cupids, clusters of grapes, pretty average symbolism, you might say. But over on the extreme left and right of the panel, this is the catalogue page of the first folio, the left and right-hand side of the panel uh, depict uh, these very strange-looking animals. Now, it turns out that these are Cali greyhounds. Right. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a Cali greyhound, Mr. Pony. Um, is that the one with the perno? <laughs> it does sound like some kind of take on a, yeah, a, a, a very alcoholic beverage. Well... On the first folio catalogue page, and also on the first folio dedication page, and in other areas of uh, the Shakespeare corpus, we can see pictures of the Cali Greyhound. I'll just quote this as a little snippet, and then I'll let people have fun with this knowledge. The Cali Greyhound is a mythical creature that appears on medieval heraldry. The De Vere family, who were the Earls of Oxford, used the Cali Greyhound in their coats of arms in the 15th and 16th centuries. Um... Do you want to know what this, this, this thing is made up of, by the way? It's, it's yeah, beyond yeah. Griffin. We are beyond Griffin here. Okay. It's got the head of a wild cat, the torso of a deer or antelope, the claws of an eagle on its forefeet, ox mm. hooves, antlers or horns, the hind legs of a lion or ox, and its tail is that of a lion or poodle. <laughs> so it's the same. <laughs> So it's completely regular. And the Cali Greyhound appears on the seals of the 13th and 15th Earls of Oxford. Now go and look at Shakespeare's coat of arms. It is Sans Cali Greyhound. Drops the mic. Don't drop the mic. We only just got these. They're brand new. They're, they're nice new mics. Yeah. Um, so uh, all it leaves now for me to say is thank you for listening, if indeed you still are. Um, we appreciate all the good reviews that you have been leaving. Um, we appreciate anyone who shares the podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, on whatever platform you choose to use. I'm on Twitter, at God of Chicken. Um, Feel free to send me comments, reviews, abuse, anything you want, uh, and I will reply in kind. And um, we also have an email address, aq at gmail.com. So please do feel free to get in touch there. If you'd like to come on, if you'd like to speak to us, if you have something you'd like to tell us, uh, if you'd like to share anything that's worth reading, please do. We will certainly read it, as I have done today. Thank you to all of our fantastic listeners, and uh, have a good day. Anon and farewell. Fare thee well. <laughs>